This is the Music History In-Depth Podcast for February 5th through the 11th. On this week's show, it is one main story and one main story only. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This show goes more in-depth about some of the events that we put on our daily podcast, the Music History Today podcast, which drops every single day, including weekends, wherever you get your podcast from. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2001. America, while not in a state of innocence, still thought themselves untouchable to a major terrorist attack. That changed on the morning of September 11, 2001. After that day, the country was in mourning and in pain. What helped to begin the healing process, especially in New York City, where almost 3,000 people were killed in those attacks, was a baseball World Series matchup only a month later between the New York Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Through those epic seven games, with Arizona winning the series on a last at-bat, the city and the nation began the healing process. What does this all have to do with the events of this week in 1964? Easy. It's because sometimes it takes pop culture and sports to distract the country from its own problems, if only for a night, or in this case, a week. In order to understand how monumental that week in 1964 was, you have to understand the mindset of the country at the time. Flashback only a few months earlier. In November of 1963, President John F. Kennedy was beginning to be in a bit of a funk, we'll say. His re-election bid was still a ways off, but he was beginning to lay the groundwork for it. He had started off the year with a 76% approval rating slash 13% disapproval rating, but by that November, those numbers were going in the completely wrong direction. Some of this due to racial tensions and his handling of the civil rights crisis in the south of the United States. Vietnam, remember, at that time was barely a blip on the radar since America was only sending, quote, military advisors, end quote, back then. Anyway, by November... Kennedy's approval ratings had slipped to 58%, while his disapproval ratings had leapt up to 30%. I think any president in this day and age would consider that a mandate to be re-elected, baby. But that wasn't the case back in the 60s. Add to that, there were problems in the state of Texas. Texas was a state that Kennedy had barely won in 1960s election. However, there was a lot of infighting in the Democratic Party in that state that needed taken care of before Kennedy could launch a successful campaign. So Kennedy decided to do a quick swing through Texas. He wanted to help start his reelection campaign there, raise money for the Democratic Party, and to help end the squabble within the state party. On the morning of November 22, 1963, Kennedy started out by speaking at a breakfast meeting in Fort Worth, Texas. 
From there, he flew to Dallas, Texas, where he was supposed to speak at a luncheon at the Trademark, then fly that afternoon to Austin, Texas, for a fundraising dinner. The president landed in Dallas, where he was met by a large crowd at Love Field Airport. He then got into his convertible limo with his wife, Jackie, and the governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie. As the motorcade made its way through Dallas, the crowd grew much bigger, slowing down the motorcade. Vice President and also former Texas Senator Lyndon B. Johnson was only a few cars behind the Kennedys in the motorcade. Johnson had come along on this trip to help smooth things over in his home state. The crowd on Houston Street was particularly big in order to see the president that day. However, they were going to turn onto Elm Street and go through Dealey Plaza where the crowd was a bit thinner. The car made the left turn off of Houston Street onto Elm Street. As it began going through Dealey Plaza, Nellie Connolly turned to President Kennedy and said, quote, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, end quote. To which Kennedy said, quote, no, you certainly can't, end quote. At that moment, just behind his right shoulder, a gun was pointed at him from an upper floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald, fired three shots at the slow-moving limo. By the time the third shot struck the president, the crowd of witnesses, deep state members, shooter on the grassy knoll, FBI killers, CIA killers, mob killers, Cuban killers, aliens, President Obama, and every other person who's ever been implicated in the assassination, looked on in stunned, screaming disbelief. The motorcade sped up, got on the nearby freeway, and rushed to the hospital, but to no avail. That third shot was the kill shot. Within an hour of the first shot, President John F. Kennedy Jr. was pronounced dead. The country spiraled into a state of deep mourning. It was going to take something kind of big to break them out of their national state of grief. Little did anyone know at the time that a music act that was just beginning to make a name for themselves overseas would help to begin to heal America long before an overseas war and the civil rights movement would help to rip the country apart at the seams. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcasts. The Music History Today podcast goes over the daily events in music history and drops daily, including weekends, on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. There's also the Music Halls of Fame podcast, which talks about a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with other Music Halls of Fame's museums and walks of fame. The Music Halls of Fame podcast drops every Thursday and can also be found on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to this podcast. Across the pond, there were four lads from Liverpool. 
The Beatles had put out their first album in Europe earlier in 1963 and then went touring through Europe to support the album. As they toured, the group suddenly became bigger and bigger and bigger. Soon, what we now call Beatlemania started to form. Throngs of adoring fans, mainly female, started showing up at the concerts, manned in the streets, and at their hotels, and at the airports. On Halloween of 1963, the lads were coming back to Heathrow Airport in London, England, from a trip to Sweden. They were met in the airport by a swarm of people, including over 100 reporters. Coincidentally, also in the airport at that exact same time, was a man who would go on to play a pivotal role in helping them to get their big break in America. Ed Sullivan had the number one television show in America in terms of variety shows. What Dick Clark was to pop music and daytime television, as Dick Clark's American Bandstand was a Saturday afternoon show, Ed Sullivan was to nighttime television. His show, for instance, broke Elvis Presley and turned Elvis into a superstar. Ed witnessed the Beatles' hysteria and thought that it reminded him of Elvis. Ed got in touch with Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager, and offered him an awful lot of money to do one appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Brian had a better idea. Brian knew that the Beatles had conquered Europe. But what he really wanted to do was to conquer America. Brian made a deal with Sullivan where the band would do multiple appearances and also do a quick tour of the United States at the same time. The PR machine went to work. Capitol Records, who were supposed to be the American distributor, initially refused to release that particular first album, believing that rock and roll in America was a fad and was pretty much dead. At that point, rock and roll had actually given way to teen idols playing a sugar-coated version of pop music. Rock never died in England, though, which is what gave rise to the Beatles in Europe to begin with. So in a sense, Capitol Records were right at least about American audiences. Even magazines and newspapers considered the genre dead, wondering aloud and in print why a boy band from England was such a big deal. Didn't matter. This was different. So, since Capitol Records refused to release their album, they were initially dropped by the group in favor of VJ Records. The single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was released in late December 1963, playing first at WWDC in Washington, D.C., and then making its way to the other major cities. The song hit number one in January of 1964. Two albums were then released the month of January, one by VJ Records, and then the other one coincidentally, not coincidentally, by Capitol, who apparently made amends for the errors of their ways and got to release an album which made them an awful lot of money. Must have seen Jesus, I guess. After all, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Okay, that's a story for a whole other podcast episode. We're not going to delve into that too much. Anywho, sorry, John. 
Lenin, that is. In any event, now, to make sure that the band's arrival went well, many, many deals had actually been struck for the fans who showed up to the airport to get some free merch, like a lot of free merch. Capitol Records, for instance, gave out posters and car stickers, while another company announced that they were giving out a Beatles t-shirt and a $1 bill. You know, nothing says show up like I'm going to bribe you a little bit of money. Remember, a buck actually was a lot of money back in the day. In any event, one radio DJ, Murray Kay of WINS Radio in New York City, back when they used to play music, now they're a news station, announced the flight number and the time of the plane. It was Pan Am Flight 101 landing in New York City at 1.20 in the afternoon. On February 7, 1964, the Beatles were met at Heathrow by the normal, by normal now, 4,000 fans who were there to see them off. All the band and their entourage knew at the time was that a couple of their songs had actually done okay in America. They were under the impression that their reception in America would be a little bit quieter than in Europe. They were wrong. Oh boy, they were very, very wrong. The plane that they were on, a Boeing 707-331 named the Jet Clipper Defiance with the serial number 17683, was met by over 3,000 people, okay, mainly screaming girls, at the World Port Terminal at what used to be known as New York International Airport in New York City only about three months earlier, but was more commonly referred to as Idlewild Airport. See, on December 24th, 1963, only two months before the Beatles landed there, Idlewild was renamed John F. Kennedy International Airport in honor of the fallen president who had only died just over a month, literally, to the day. The band got off the plane, waved to the screaming fans, then went into the terminal to give their now-famous press conference. The boys charmed the press by joking around with them concerning all things, from the group's haircuts to the city of Detroit, Michigan, doing what they called a Stamp Out the Beatles campaign because the city government thought that the Beatles were a bad influence on the youth. Yeah, that happened. Then, the band were whisked away to the Plaza Hotel on 59th Street across from Central Park. And there, they were greeted by hundreds more fans who had to be held back by a ton of police. The band and their entourage set up camp on the 12th floor of the hotel. Some of the people allowed to see them that day included the Ronettes, DJ Murray Kay of WINS Radio, who we talked about just a few minutes ago, BBC presenter Brian Matthews, who was there doing an interview with the group, and George Harrison's sister, who lived in the state of Illinois at that time but flew in to see him. And that was day one, February 7th, 1964. The British invasion had barely just begun.
Even though this is mainly about the Beatles this go-around, there are some honorable mentions before we continue. For instance, on February 5th, 2012, Madonna, LMFAO, Nicki Minaj, and CeeLo Green performed at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. That particular halftime show became the most watched event in television history and is probably the last time that that many people will watch something at the same time now that everybody's entertainment choices are being fragmented. That's 118 million people who saw that performance, by the way. On February 6, 1945, the person most responsible for bringing reggae from the streets of Trenchtown, Jamaica to the world at large was born. So, happy heavenly birthday to Mr. Bob Marley, whose career we will cover on the in-depth podcast for May 11th, the date of his death. On February 8, 1960, the United States government opened hearings into record labels paying for radio stations to play their songs, better known these days as the Payola scandal. The scandal took down the most popular DJ at the time and the man who was credited with giving mainstream America the phrase rock and roll, which was actually black slang for sex. Rock and roll Hall of Fame disc jockey and promoter, Alan Freed. We will discuss the scandal at great length in a later episode. On February 10th, 1971, Carol King released one of the greatest and biggest selling albums of all time, Tapestry. And on February 10th, 1978, Van Halen released their self-titled debut album and changed rock music for at least a couple of generations of kids. Circling back to the Beatles now, on February 8, 1958, after a Quarrymen concert, George Harrison was introduced to John Lennon by Paul McCartney. On February 9, 1961, the Beatles played for the first time at the famed Cavern Club in Liverpool, England. On February 11, 1963, the Beatles recorded 10 songs in one day for their Please Please Me album, including Do You Want to Know a Secret and I Saw Her Standing There. And on February 8, 1964, the day after they arrived in America, that day was spent trying to get over the jet lag since there was a five-hour time difference between London, England and New York City. The group also went to the Ed Sullivan Theater only a few long blocks away from the Plaza Hotel for rehearsals. And if you know about long blocks, you know about long blocks. It's a New York thing. One person who didn't make the rehearsal was George Harrison, who had been dealing with a case of strep throat for a little while and was ordered to stay behind at the hotel. George's part during the rehearsal was taken care of by Neil Aspinall, the Beatles' road manager, and also by someone else who worked for Ed Sullivan. On February 9, 1964, at 8 p.m., a television viewer had a few choices, we'll say, as to what to watch. For instance, on ABC at 8 o'clock, you could watch The Travels of Jamie McFeeters. That was a Western starring Charles Deathwish Bronson, also a then 12-year-old Kurt Russell, 
and members of the Osmond Brothers singing troupe. No, no, not not Donia Marie. That that's a little before their time. You could follow that up at eight thirty on ABC with a show called Arrest and Trial, which was a cops and lawyers show starring Chuck the Rifleman Connors and the great Ben Gazzara. Think of it as Law and Order about two decades before Law and Order actually came on television. Over on NBC, by the way, you could watch such family fare as The Wonderful World of Disney in Color, and then follow that show up by another show called Grindle, starring the very funny comedian Imogene Coca as a woman who worked for a temporary agency who got jobs that she was never qualified to do. That particular night's episode was called Dial G for Grindle. In the episode, Grindle was hired by a woman whose husband hired a gang leader to kill her. Hilarity and hijinks ensue. Wonder why that show only lasted a year. It sounds like a classic. Anyway, over on Fox... Oh, wait. That was just a test pattern. Fox didn't even exist. In fact, back in 1964, you had extremely few choices as to what to watch. And that was if your rooftop antenna could actually pick up all those channels to begin with, which not a lot of them did back in the day. Although NBC had two shows that are now considered classics, both Disney and also Bonanza, which was on at 9 o'clock that night. It was the CBS lineup that had the now classic show lineup. Uh, your night started off, for instance, with Mr. Ed, the talking horse, not, not Ed Sullivan. That was followed by Lassie, the dog who always had to rescue his owner, Timmy, out of a well that Timmy kept falling into every single week. I think in the series finale, Lassie finally had had just about enough of Timmy's BS and told him to get his own butt out of the damn well. And then Lassie took off, probably for New York or L.A., to seek fame and fortune like everybody. You know how that goes. Anyway, the night finished off with my favorite Martian, the Judy Garland show, Candid Camera, which was punked before there was such a thing as punked, What's My Line, and To Tell the Truth the last two being game shows. At 8 p.m., though, especially on February 9th, 1964, you were more than likely tuned to one show and one show only, the Ed Sullivan TV Variety Show. Ed's variety show really had variety. He had, for instance, puppeteers, Broadway stars, singers, actors, and at one point, guys who sang standards and teen idols. Remember, even though Ed had broken Elvis Presley into the mainstream, Rock at that point was considered dead. Even Elvis was doing movies by then, and not really rock and roll per se. The only thing that anybody remembers about this particular night was that the Beatles were on for what seemed like an hour. They weren't. There was renowned magician Fred Cap, whose performance was blissfully pre-taped because they needed to do a set change between segments. Besides, if he had done his act live right after the Beatles, he would never have gotten through it. 
Hell, even Ed had trouble just introducing the segment with all the screaming girls that still needed to be hosed down. Also on the show that night were an acrobatic troupe called Wells and the Fortes and some kid singing a Broadway song. More on that kid later, by the way. He ends up actually being kind of important. At 8 p.m., Ed Sullivan had his usual show intro. Got up on stage. The crowd was already riled up. And Ed thanked a lot of people and then said his now famous intro, Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! And history began to be made, although no one really knew it at the time. The band started with All My Loving, then went into Till There Was You. After that, they played She Loves You, which sent the audience into the stratosphere. The producer of the show cut between the band and the hyperventilating girls, your grandparents, I might add, if they ever bring up anything about how you go crazy over BTS, Taylor, Bieber, Riri, or whoever these days. At one point, there was a caption put under a shot of John Lennon that said, Sorry, girls, he's taken, as he was married to Cynthia Lennon at the time. After She Loves You came the Fred Cap segment. The band came back to play I Saw Her Standing There and I Want to Hold Your Hand, and then their part of the show was done. The poor acrobatic troupe had to do cleanup duty along with that singing kid. The band would play the next two Sundays on the show, one of which was actually taped beforehand. In the meantime, the band went on a short tour of the United States, including playing their first official United States concert in Washington, D.C. on February 11th, 1964. The significance of this particular night cannot be understated. First, it went a long way towards healing the nation after JFK's death, although the nation would soon be ripped to shreds a few years later by the civil rights movement, more assassinations, including Martin Luther King Jr., Robert F. Kennedy, the president's brother, and Malcolm X, along with the Vietnam War, which by the mid-1960s had cranked itself up into a stupendously amazing catastrophe. Second, the Beatles' appearance reinvigorated rock and roll in America, which had suffered greatly after the day the music died, which we covered on the Music History In-Depth podcast last week about the death of Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens in a plane crash. Plus, Elvis Presley getting drafted into the United States Army back in 1958. As I said earlier, for a time between the late 1950s until the early 1960s, we'll say, the rock and roll landscape was a bunch of bubblegum teenage pop idols and rock and roll looked like a fad that had pretty much run its course. What people didn't realize, though, was that the British kids had picked up rock and roll helped out by British concert tours by African-American artists like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, etc., etc. After the Beatles came to America, though, things changed drastically because soon 
Every record label had to have their own British rock band. The Kinks, the Rolling Stones, the Who, etc. started the trek across the pond that became known as the British Invasion. After that, rock music became the most popular music in the country and was no longer considered a fad. Third, the show set the record for the most watched broadcast in television history with 73 million people watching, which was roughly 40% of the entire United States population at that time. That record, by the way, would be broken a few years later when the series finale of The Fugitive aired, when everybody finally found out who that one-armed man was. As for all the players involved, the Beatles became arguably the most important group in music history, at least in pop music history, and pretty much changed the game forever. Ed Sullivan had his legendary show for about another decade, still breaking acts, including a lot of Motown acts, I might add, like the Jackson 5 and the Supremes. Oh, um, back to that singing kid who was on the show that night. He sang the song, I'd Do Anything, from the Broadway musical Oliver, where he was performing as the Artful Dodger. Towards the end of the decade, that kid, by then all grown up, auditioned for and got a role on a TV show about the madcap adventures of a band that acted an awful lot like the Beatles. This group in the show would go on to have hits of their own, and the kid would become a teen idol in his own right. That show was the Monkees, and that kid who performed on the same show with the Beatles and who would later in life imitate them as an adult, Mr. Davy Jones, who just for a little extra trivia, was also the reason why a then David Jones had to change his real name to the name he'd spend the rest of his career as, David Bowie. Funny how the world works sometimes, huh? The week that changed the world forever. The Beatles landing in America on February 7th, 1964, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan TV show on February 9th, 1964, along with their first official concert in America on February 11th, 1964. And that is it for the Music History In-Depth podcast for February 5th through the 11th. Thanks for listening. <laughs>